All right, let's go to Ecclesiastes 5. If you found that, why don't you stand? We'll read together God's Word. Ecclesiastes chapter 5, we'll start in verse 1 and read down to verse 7. Grass withers and the flowers fade, but the Word of our God stands forever. Let's begin verse 1. This is what the preacher says. Guard your steps when you go to the house of God. To draw near to listen is better than to offer the sacrifice of fools, for they do not know that they're doing evil. Be not rash with your mouth, nor let your heart be hasty to utter a word before God. For God is in heaven and you are on earth, therefore let your words be few. For a dream comes with much business, with, with much busyness, and a fool's voice with many words. Verse 4. When you vow a vow to God, do not delay in paying it, for he has no pleasure in fools. Pay what you vow. It is better that you should not vow than that you should vow and not pay. Let not your mouth lead you into sin, and do not say before the messenger that it was a mistake. Why should God be angry at your voice and destroy the work of your hands? For when dreams increase and words grow many, there is vanity. But God is the one you must fear. Join me as we pray. Father, we ask your blessings on the reading of this, your word. I pray that you would strengthen what remains, that you would heal the wounds in people's hearts and souls, that you would bring us back to the joy of our salvation even today. In Jesus' name we ask, amen. may be seated. Ecclesiastes chapter 5. I can think of no better text to be dropped right into the middle of at this time in history. It's been a year. You know, a year is a long time not to function at a hundred percent, especially for a church. Thankfully, there does seem to be some good news on the horizon. Numbers seem to be going down. Restrictions seem to be loosening. At least there's talk of loosening. So now seems to be a good time to prepare our minds and our hearts for what is life going to be like when we start heading toward something normal. What does it look like for the entire church to once again be worshiping in one room together? What does it mean for us to be the church on Sunday, on the Lord's Day? To set aside one day in the week and make sure we gather corporately with the body to lift up the name of Jesus. I think this passage, I think this passage, especially in the Old Testament, is a really good reintroduction to corporate worship. We are adaptable. Humans are remarkably adaptable. Humans are very resilient. 
I, I, I have seen that resilience uh, evidenced in many of you as you've walked through things the last year and a half or so that you didn't think you could carry, but by God's grace, He carried you through it. Humans can be very resilient. But the problem with adaptation is we get used to things that are not normal. And a lot of us have adapted to the church not running at 100%. That is a negative adaptation. Many of us, many of us have done it because we, we've had to. You have to do that. You can't be here uh, because of some sort of condition or maybe even your conscience. But I do believe that there is some danger in getting used to an unhealthy absence in church. So today, what I want to do is I want to use this passage in Ecclesiastes chapter 5. I'd like to use this passage to help us start thinking. Thinking about how good and vital and necessary it is to be with the church. Now, Ecclesiastes is a tough book. Up to this point, when you read it, it feels uh, pretty cruel. It feels sometimes like there's not hope. It would be very easy and understandable to ask, where has God been? In my hurt, in my struggle, in my frustration, in my pain, where has He been? I mean, chapters 1, 2, 3, and 4, you don't hear much about God. You can ask the question, where has God been? And then when you get to chapter 5, the, the floodgates seem to open as the preacher, that's, that's what Solomon calls himself, the preacher uses the name of God six times in seven verses, which is remarkable for the book of Ecclesiastes. And what the preacher does is he brings us face to face with the transcendence of God. He brings us face to face with the godness of God, with the bigness of God. And he calls us, his children, God's children, he calls us to gather and worship. Now, for the next few moments we have together... I want to use this passage to convince you of the glory of God and our need to worship Him because our God is good and worthy of your worship. I hope you'll see it, that our God is good and He is worthy of our worship. What I'd like to do, let's just go through the passage. There are seven verses. I think you can, can group some of them together. I initially had six admonitions. I want to offer up five, shortened it down a little bit, five admonitions based on this passage. I'll give you short phrases and maybe uh, just, just open them up just a bit. Here's the first one that I hope you'll do. Number one, guard your life. Guard your life. It is said that an unguarded moment for a Christian man or woman, all it takes is an unguarded moment for us to fall into sin. Guard. You can see that right there in verse 1. I mean, it's the very first phrase in verse sentence where the preacher says, you are to guard your steps 
when you go to the house of God. Now Solomon's writing this. He probably is talking about temple worship. Remember, he is the one that God used to build the temple. And he's talking about people coming to the temple to worship. And he's speaking more about attitude than just showing up. There's got to be more to worship than just getting in the building. I mean, even the phrase, guard your steps, we know that phrase. We even use it when we offer a warning to someone to watch how you're living. We might say, uh, you, you need to watch your step. You need to be careful. Be careful how you live. <clears throat> when, you, when you see this passage in Ecclesiastes, you've you got to remember it goes it goes beyond the legalism of doing right things, and it goes right into the attitude of our hearts. That's what God sees is our hearts. What you have here is prudence and, and, and reverence and respect and caution. And I think this has a great deal of application for the New Testament church. Although we no longer go to a temple to worship, and we believe that once you become a Christian, you, you yourself, you are the temple of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit of God resides in you. God's people still gather. When the Holy Spirit descended, remember Acts chapter 2, He created the church. And the people of God have been gathering together since then on the Lord's day. God's people gather, gather together, and that which holds us together is the Lamb of God, Jesus, who was slain, dying on the cross. He didn't just purchase souls, He purchased a church. Jesus' death on the cross and His resurrection secured salvation for me personally, and for you personally, and for any sinner that repents of her sin and believes in Jesus and now, because of Christ, we don't need a priest. We have a priest. He is our priest. He has gained access to God for us. And so we come to God the Father through Jesus the Son by the power of the Holy Spirit. And God has established His church, His church, that's you and I gathering together in an assembly on one day that is set aside Sunday, the Lord's Day. The Lord's Day is a sacred day because it's the day where we celebrate the resurrection of Jesus that gives us hope. The Lord's Day is a sacred time when we collectively make it different than any other day. We collectively come together by the blood of Jesus and we say that our God who saves us is worthy of our lives. On a Sunday, we're not just dropping in on a neighbor. We're not just stopping by somebody's house for a friendly chat. We are going to meet with other redeemed people, and we're going to celebrate how God has stooped down and in Jesus how He meets with us. And, and the admonition here in, in verse 1 is, okay, when you're going to that assembly, you need to guard your life. Guard how you live. Not, not as a hypocrite, not as a functioning atheist, 
Not as a, a lazy Christian, not as someone that's hateful, not as someone that's unforgiving, not as someone that is bitter, not as someone that is unreconciled to a brother or sister, or, or God forbid, as an abusive person. You are to be thoughtful. The, the preacher is saying you are to be thoughtful. It ought to be thoughtful what we sing. We, we put the words on the screen for a reason, not because we don't have hymn books anymore. We put the words there so that you can see them as you sing and understand that there is great theology and what we're singing to the Lord. You ought to be thoughtful in your preparation. You think about coming to worship. What goes into that? How did you prepare your, your heart for worship, your life for worship? used to always say that you start preparing for Sunday on a Saturday. And in fact, a good way to remember it is Saturday night live is Sunday morning dead. You stay up all night on Saturday, you're not going to be prepared for worship. Or your, or your attitude, or your, or your timing, or, or how you think about it. Or maybe even what you're doing right now. One of the great distractions in church even now is a, is a phone. Would you... Would you have your phone in your hand and be checking Twitter if you were sitting and talking about a job promotion with your boss? Would you be texting a friend or checking Twitter while that was going on? Why then would you feel comfortable in an order of worship, in a time of worship before a holy God doing that very thing? As you sit even here today, in His holy presence with God's people, those that have been redeemed by the blood of Jesus. As we sit here on a Sunday, it's known as the Lord's Day, the day that we celebrate how God raised Jesus from the dead. Even beyond that, there, there are some of you sitting here this morning, or maybe watching online, that have some significant loose ends of sin that need to be dealt with. Even today, your worship can't be acceptable to God. I can't help but think about uh, this week's headlines with the Christian apologist Ravi Zacharias. Some of you know of him, some of you may not. You can go and, and look at it. I went and read the report of, of the investigation into his life. And I, it's not, I would not recommend the reading of it. It's just foul reading. But the years of abuse that he inflicted on so many women, and yet he would handle these truths, teaching them. Now, now your, your, your sin may not be like his, but the principle is the same. And so let me just ask a couple of questions. One might be, what for worship to be meaningful for you, what... What sin do you need to repent of? For worship to be meaningful for you, what relationship needs to be restored or at least mended? Jesus said if you're offering your gift at the altar and there you remember your brother has something against you, go and make it right with him, then come and worship. Or a third question might be, <clears throat> what, what questionable Maybe you're not even sure if it's... What questionable activity do you need to stop in order for your worship to heal your soul? You see, worshiping God is serious business. Our 
Our God is good and He's worthy of our worship. And I would just say to you, based on this passage, you need to guard, we need to guard our lives. Let me give you another consideration. You'll find it also in verse 1. Not only guard your life, number two, learn to listen. Learn to listen. You see what the preacher says right there in verse 1? Notice what the second half of verse 1 is. I'm going to read it to you. Guard your steps when you go to the house of God. To draw near to listen is better than to offer the sacrifice of fools, for they do not know that they're committing evil. The sacrifice of fools. To listen is better than to offer up the sacrifice of fools. To listen. To actually hear what it is that God says. And here's, let's be, let's be clear on how God speaks. The only way we hear from God is through His Word. That, that's how He speaks to us. If someone says to you that God told them to tell you something, it, it better be an exact quote from the Bible. I mean, this is why our service on Sunday morning is saturated with the Bible. This is why we start by reading the Bible. This is why the songs we sing are based on the Bible. This is why we do expositional preaching like we do. This is why we offer up a reading plan. This is why we have the Dwell app for you. This is why I ask you to stand and read the Bible. Just as a reminder, here is the authority. Because this book gives us the whole story of the whole gospel. This book tells us who God is, that He is holy, who we are, that we are sinners in need of a Savior, who Jesus is and what He did, dying on the cross in the place of sinners, how God raised Him from the dead. This book tells us that without faith, it's impossible to please God, and without believing in Jesus, it's impossible to be God's child. But the good thing is, this book gives us hope, this book gives us clarity. This book gives us strength. This book makes us resolute. That's why you're walking through what you're walking through and able to do so. And and look at the alternative in verse 1. Look at the alternative to word-based worship. Let me read verse 1 again. Notice what it says. Guard your steps when you go to the house of God to draw near to listen. To draw near to listen is better than to offer the sacrifice of fools for they do not know that they're doing evil. The sacrifice of fools. They don't even know it. These are people that have gotten used to playing games with God. Gotten used to playing games with God and have done it so long that you don't know how to do anything else. The sacrifice of fools in verse 1 is the, is the talking, it's the acting, it's the, it's the, it's the, entertain, it's the entertaining, it's the... It's the experience without listening. Look, listening listening to God takes work. We go to His Bible, open it up, and we ask questions. What is God saying to me through His Word? And in light of what He said to me, what needs to happen in my life so that I might live honoring to God? Right, Right worship is... Right worship is informed worship. We, we find out who God is and who I am and what it takes for me to have fellowship with God, what I need in my life. The Bible teaches us that our God is good and worthy of our worship. We need to guard our lives and we need to learn to listen. <clears throat> I'll give you a third admi- admonition. You'll find it in verses 2 and 3. 
Number three, we are to pray from our hearts. Pray from our hearts. Let me show you where I get this. Now, verse two is the command, and verse three is the illustration. The illustration doesn't make much sense. It basically means that uh, too much talk is not any good. It's not helpful. Let me me read it to you. Be not rash with your mouth, nor let your heart be hasty to utter a word before God. For God is in heaven, and you are on earth. Therefore, let your words be few. And then here's the illustration that doesn't translate well into English. For a dream comes with much busyness. So you've been busy all day, got a lot of things in your mind, you lay down and go to sleep, and then the dream shows up. And a fool's voice shows up with many words. In other words, you you use a lot of words, you talk too much, you're going to end up sounding like a fool. How does that speak to prayer? Well, here in verse 2, the preacher gives two negative commands about prayer. You see it in verse 2? Do not be rash with your mouth and do not be hasty in your heart. And, and then underneath, come down in verse 2, there are, there's a reason. There's a reason for these two negative directives. The reason is God is in heaven and you are on earth. What is the preacher saying? The preacher is saying, don't forget who you're talking to. That there is a vast gulf between man and God. And we can never, I'm afraid we forgot, we can never forget it. Here is the person, here's the picture in verse 2. It's the person that's coming to the temple and praying deliberately and praying thoughtfully and, and thinking about who it is that you're talking to that we are in front of a holy God. It's good for us to remember that we are in front of of a holy God that justice demanded that every one of us should have gone to hell. But because of this holy God's grace in the person of Jesus, at the cross of Jesus, He has brought us into His presence by the blood of Jesus. He welcomes us. He receives our requests. And so we... We, we pray from the heart. We pray by the Spirit. We, we pray informed by the Bible. We, we pray like Jesus taught us. Remember the Lord's Prayer? I mean, just think about how the Lord's Prayer even begins. Our Father, so the eminence and closeness of God, we, we have a closeness of God that comes through Jesus. Our Father who is in heaven the transcendence and bigness and, and holiness of God. So, so when you pray, <clears throat> when you pray, sometimes it's easy for your mind to wander when you pray. Sometimes in a, in a church setting, when, when I say a prayer or one of the pastors says a prayer, it would be very easy for you to disengage Check your phone, daydream. What do we do to make sure? Real prayer takes work. What, what, do, what do we do personally when you read the Bible and you really want to be um, devotionally square? You're, you're trying to really walk with God, but praying is difficult, especially for a lot of us who get 100 things going in your mind at once. What, what do you do? I'd like to suggest a couple of things. 
When you pray, you, you should think through what you're praying for. What is it you actually need God to do? Uh, one good way to guide your prayers is to use the Bible. Go to the psalm and, and use what David has written. It's basically a prayer book. And use that to prompt you to ask what he has asked of God. When, when you pray, you could take the Lord's Prayer and, and write the Lord's Prayer out phrase by phrase and let that structure be your guide for how you're going to pray. What, one good way to pray that has been helpful to me over the years, is actually just to write it out. Or if you're praying for someone, go ahead and text that prayer to that person so that they can see what it is you're asking God to do. When you pray, it's good to remember, to, to have Jesus, get, get the cross on your mind, that remember the only way that your prayer goes into the ear of God is because of Jesus. Our, our God is good and He's worthy of our worship. He calls us to guard our lives and to learn to listen and to pray from the heart. Let me give you a fourth thing to consider, another admonition you'll find in the text. is verses 4, 5, and 6. This is where I put two points together. <clears throat> verses 4, 5, and 6, six all have to do with, with doing what you say. In other words, worship is, is, is evidenced by how you live. You, you do what you say you're going to do. You, you find it in the form of a vow. Well, let me read it to you. Vow. Verse 4. <clears throat> when you vow a vow to God, do not delay in paying it, for He has no pleasure in Fools, pay what you vow. It is better that you should not vow than that you should vow and not pay. And then it's illustrated here in verse 6. Let not your mouth lead you into sin. You should probably just cut that verse and just post, post it. Somewhere. Let not your mouth lead you into sin. Let not your mouth lead you into sin and do not say before the messenger, yours might say angel, before the messenger that it was a mistake. Why should God be angry at your voice and destroy the work of your hands. So here, here the preacher has brought up vows. We, we don't talk about vows very much, making a solemn vow. We don't talk like that very much. A vow is a free act of worship that involves a commitment and a follow-through. Right? You know, a vow is a commitment that points to a follow-through. I promise I'm going to do this. Probably the most famous vow is from uh, Hannah in 1 Samuel chapter 1 when she makes a vow to God, if you will give me a child, I will dedicate it to the temple. And she, she keeps her vow. It's, it's a commitment with a follow-through. All of us here, we, we make some kind of vow in life. We make some kind of commitment that demands a follow-through. I mean, if you got married, you made a marriage Vow. You made a commitment on one day that demands a follow-through. Or if you've taken an oath of office somewhere, you made a commitment that demands a follow-through. Or, or maybe it's not so formal. <clears throat> if you've made a promise to a friend, you made a commitment that calls for a follow-through. Or if you were 
You were baptized. You made a commitment. Calls for a follow-through. You've joined a church. You made a commitment that calls for a follow-through. If you've uttered the words, Jesus is Lord, you made a commitment, a vow, that calls for a follow-through. If you've joined a church and you read a church covenant, and following through on a vow that you made is one of the most energizing effects in your worship to God, especially when you've walked through such difficulty and you've tried your best to keep it. When you struggle to do the right thing to the glory of God. How about when you break a vow? All of us here, I mean, we've made some sort of promise and not kept it. When we break that vow, we fall on the mercy of God found at the cross of Jesus. Let us never forget that the only person who never broke a vow was Jesus. So we run to Him. We come to Him. We cling to Him. We go to His cross. There we find healing. There we find the basis. There we find our right to worship this God. So we guard our lives and we learn to listen. We pray from the heart. And we do what we say. I'll give you one last one, one last admonition. It's down there in verse 7. That is simply to fear, to fear God. I mean, really, verse 7, this is the, this is the primary punch of the entire passage. The whole thing predicate, is predicated on the actual fear of God. You may have even heard the phrase, I'm going to put the fear of God in you. If you hear that, you got bad news on the way, by the way, that you hear that. So we read about the fear of God, and when you read of the fear of God, we start equivocating as New Testament believers. We, we're not very comfortable with the idea of actually being scared. I mean, as New Testament believers, we often wonder, am I to be afraid of God? So I, I hear words like, uh, equivocation like, okay, that means reverence or awe or to be in respect. And, and I agree, those are great words. But, but I would like to suggest something. I would suggest that in today's church, we are not in any danger of fearing God too much. I mean, the, the text says in verse 7, for when dreams increase and words grow many, there's vanity, there's a lot of talk, it's, 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 it's havil, it's wind. Then he ends it, you should fear God, or the way mine says it, but God is the one you must fear. You say, well, that's Old Testament, or well, maybe it is Old Testament, but the writers of the New Testament picked it up. The writer of Hebrews tells us that it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. The writer of Hebrews also says that, that our God is a consuming fire. You get in the book of Acts and you go to chapter 2 where the church is born. By the time you get to Acts chapter 5, you find inside the church Ananias and Sapphira. They drop dead because of their deceptive ways just in giving 
dropped dead in the church. And the Bible says that many people came to Christ because of fear after hearing that. We're going to take the Lord's Supper next Sunday. <clears throat> we'll use 1 Corinthians chapter 11. 1 Corinthians chapter 11 gives instructions for the Lord's Supper, but it's given because at that church in Corinth, they weren't doing it correctly. And Paul says there are lots of people at this church that are dying because of that. Because they were flippant about worship. I mean, even, look, even Jesus himself, in Luke chapter 12, verses 4 and 5, Jesus says, I, I tell you, my friends, do not fear those that can kill the body, and after that have nothing more they can do. I'll tell you who to fear. Fear him who, after he has killed, this is God he's talking about, he has the authority to cast people into hell. Yeah, you should fear him. So, how do we, as believers in what Jesus has done for us on the cross, who's brought God close, how do we see him as Father in heaven? How do we fear God? I'd like to close with a couple of couple of ways to maybe help you fear God. You need to recognize God as God and your wretched condition before Him. See God as God and your sinful condition before Him and need for the gospel. We fear God when, when we respond to God being holy, me being a sinner, and Jesus dying on the cross for sinners. We respond to His grace. You fear God when you receive His love for us in Jesus. Let us not forget, He is a loving God. You fear God when you trust, when you trust his direction and His name in your life when it, when it doesn't make any sense to you. You fear God when you wait. Will you wait on His perfect will? You fear God when you rejoice in His mercy to you. You stand before Him loved because of His mercy. You fear God when you when you put your hope in His steadfast affection for you and worship Him. You see, our, our God is good and He's worthy of our worship. That worship finds its center and heart at the cross. This morning as we close I'm going to ask you just to pray with me. Uh, with your heads bowed, I'd like to close just with a couple of questions. So, so be still just for a moment and just reflect with me with these questions. Here's the first question that we'll close with. What is it right now that is hindering your worship? What's getting in the way? What's making it hard for you to worship? 
Is it some sin you've committed, some, something you've left undone, some loose end of sin that you, we just need to address? What is it? What is the first thing that comes to your mind? What's hindering your worship? Could, can you just take that right now as I'm talking, just take that to the Lord where you're sitting. Just take that to the Lord. Here's a second question. <clears throat> what problem do you need to trust God with? You have something that sticks out. What is the problem? What do you have? You need to trust God with that. Would you right now just ask God, silently where you are, God, help me. I, I, I don't have much trust. Please help me to trust you with this. Here's, here's another question. What sin do you need to repent of? What's the first one that comes up? Let's just take that to the Lord. Trust that at the cross of Christ, all the judgment that that sin brings is, is, has come on Jesus at the cross. Here's another question. What vow have you broken? And you need the mercy of God and the healing that only God can bring. You need that. You, you just confess that to the Lord and receive His healing. I'll, I'll, I'll end with this one. Who do you need to forgive? No matter how bad the sin is that's been against you, your sin before a holy God is more offensive, and in Jesus, He has forgiven you. Now, as a forgiven person, you're called to forgive, and it's, it's, it's making it so you can't worship. Who do you need to forgive? And right now, just ask God to give you strength to do that. So help us, God. We want to be people that are faithful, worship. Show it and live it. So help us this morning. Hear the prayers of your people. We ask them in the name of Jesus. Amen.